0: Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7250, would the last man on the moon please turn out the lights? The week of December 10th, 1972. Welcome to Retrogram, pick a week between 1970 and 1990, watch all of the sci-fi, horror, superhero, and fantasy shows that week, cram the results into one podcast. That's this podcast, by the way. And we are rewinding to the week of December tenth, nineteen 1972. The final crew of an Apollo mission to the moon was preparing to land and walk on the moon for the last time humans would do that in the 20th century. And your host, well, the host of Retrogram, was still crapping his diapers. Australia had just made equal pay for women the law of the land. Atari's first run of Pong machines had been invading pinball arcades for less than a month, though the Magnavox Odyssey, the first home video game system, had been around a few months longer and was one of the hot upscale Christmas items of the year. HBO was about a month old and it was still only serving viewers in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And as for all the spooky stories on TV, they were finding it a hard uphill climb. The fall season in 1972 had brought some brand new shows to the primetime schedule, including M.A.S.H., The Waltons, Maud, The Bob Newhart Show, Kung Fu, and over on PBS, great performances. TV was about to get topical in a big way. Were audiences still up for sitting around the TV campfire for some scary escapism? Let's find out. Gallery season 3 episode 7 Fright Night aired Sunday December 10th on NBC Struggling writer Tom Ogilvy and his wife Leona have lucked out No Tom's books haven't finally taken off It's just that they've inherited a country house from Tom's late cousin Zachariah Ogilvy a kind of enigmatic old hermit It's a nice little place a bit old fashioned complete with an attic office that Tom claims is his study There's even a housekeeper, and she's a bit of a firebrand, but she's really keen on not staying anywhere near the place when night falls. Oh, and by the way, that antique trunk in the study? uh Don't touch it. Don't move it. Don't even open it. Someone will be coming for it. Those were the dying wishes of Cousin Zachariah. But the dust on the floor tells a different story. The trunk has been moved. Or maybe the trunk just moved. Oh, well. Housekeeper's out of here, leaving the new owners of the house to settle in. At night, weird things start happening. Like the crickets just stop for a few moments, leaving a dead silence. Hmm. That's weird. The next day, more weird stuff. Tom's in the study when the trunk... Yeah, apparently it just moves by itself, across the floor, toward Tom. And then it starts kind of levitating... Pretty odd thing for a piece of antique furniture to do, really. Then it settles down again. Good trunk. Nice trunk. Just stay over there, trunk. Stay. Tom gets back to work on his book, cranking away at the old manual typewriter until the dead of night. Time to call it a night. He wakes Leona up when he gets into bed, but she thinks he's only been gone a few minutes. After all, his side of the bed has been slept in. That's kind of awkward. Upstairs in Tom's study, the trunk opens. Shadows are thrown upon the walls. Voices can be heard. Voices speaking of a plan to possess someone's body, and speaking of a plan to call forth the Prince of Darkness. Again, we are talking about some serious, non-standard, antique trunk features here. The keys of the typewriter begin moving, typing out a message on the sheet of paper that Tom left in it. Tom finds this lengthy missive first thing in the morning, and he immediately accuses Leona of playing a prank on him. No, it wasn't her. The message that's been left is pretty creepy, going into disturbing detail about a scenario where a kettle of scalding hot liquid is forced into the mouth of a young woman before she's killed by a man. Uh, yeah, Tom, really, why would Leona type any of this? His next theory holds about as much water. A kid from the nearby village must have broken into the house and done this. Sure they did. At this point, Leona's ready to do some minor renovation. Let's get rid of the trunk. She calls someone to drop by and haul it off, and as he's doing so, the haul-it-off guy cracks a joke about the trunk being heavy enough for there to be a body inside. Real funny haul-it-off guy. Now, haul it off. But the trunk just reappears out of nowhere that night, while Tom is enjoying a nice bout of writer's block. Leona screams. Tom races to the bedroom and finds her terrified. Someone was just in the bed again, but this time she knows it wasn't Tom, and she couldn't move. Morning again, and since the trunk apparently can't be moved off the property, Tom drags it down to the old shed out back, locks it up, and boards up the door of the shed. That night, Tom is really jonesing for some hot cocoa. Leona tells him they've run out. Things start getting ugly. Tom feels the need to point out that Leona's only responsibility in this whole world is to keep the pantry stocked for just two people, and she can't even do that. Leona, in the meantime, reminds Tom that it's been three months since he did anything to bring in any kind of money, and she hasn't exactly noticed him writing a whole lot. Tom grabs a saucepan off the stove full of boiling milk, and he's hell-bent on forcing it down Leona's throat. up uh, does any of this sound familiar to anybody? There's a knock at the door. We hate to interrupt your horrific moment of domestic violence, but trick-or-treat! It must be Halloween. All right. Back to work. Tom climbs the stairs, opens the door to his study. Oh, hey. The trunk is back. What? Another knock at the door. Oh, hey, trick-or-treat! Desiccated walking corpse of cousin Zachariah? You? He says he's here for his trunk. Leona screams. Zombie Zack heads upstairs to get the trunk. By morning, everything seems normal. Hey, honey, you know how weird and violent I was acting last night. Yeah, that was all supernatural stuff. It's all over, except... Oh, hey, the trunk is back in its spot in the study. There's a note attached. It will be called for. When Tom touches the note, it bursts into flames. You know what? Nice little old country house for sale, lease rental, whatever, doesn't matter, the Ogilvies are out of here. The end. You know, if Tom had at least opened a diner upstairs instead of a study, I could have tried to set this whole thing to music. No? Okay. Rod Serling's Night Gallery was on its way out at this point, nearing the end of its three-year series run that followed on from a successful TV movie of the same name, which aired on NBC in 1969. The third season, consisting of only 15 episodes, shifted the length of the episodes from a one-hour slot containing multiple shorter stories to a mere half-hour. You'd think this would be more in line with The Twilight Zone and therefore would be perfect for Rod Serling's new show, but Serling's influence continued to be reduced because he was never truly the showrunner of the show that we call Rod Serling's Night Gallery. That would be the executive producer in charge of Night Gallery, Jack Laird. As a writer, Jack Laird had written scripts for the 1950s Lone Ranger TV series, Broken Arrow, M-Squad, Have Gun, Will Travel, Ben Casey, and contributed scripts to 16 episodes of Night Gallery. He was a mystery and supernatural aficionado as well as a big fan of the works of H.P. Lovecraft. If you ever wondered why Night Gallery occasionally had goofy, lighthearted segments, that was Laird's influence, and it wasn't something that Serling really appreciated. Following the three seasons of Night Gallery, Jack Laird went on to become the producer of Kojak. We lost Jack in 1991. The stars of this episode include Stuart Whitman as Tom Ogilvy. Beginning in the 1950s, Stuart was one of those actors who just showed up everywhere. Highway patrol, Rio Conchos, those magnificent men in their flying machines, Cimarron Strip, Ghost Story, The Seekers, Night Rider, Tales of the Dark Side, and in the late 80s early 90s Superboy series he was Jonathan Kent. Sounds like we'll be seeing more of him in other installments of Retrogram. The same goes for Barbara Anderson, who also appeared in Star Trek, Mission Impossible, The Invisible Man, Wonder Woman, and she was one of the stars of Ironside. There's some other TV royalty in this night gallery. Ellen Corby was, of course, best known as Esther Walton from the Waltons, while Alan Napier, who had the unenviable job of playing Cousin Zachariah's reanimated corpse, was the wonderful and definitive Alfred in the Adam West Batman series. He's still my favorite Alfred, by the way, with all due respect to everyone who's played the part since then. The teleplay for this episode was by Robert Malcolm Young. He wrote for It Takes a Thief, Mission Impossible, The Immortal, Kojak, Streets of San Francisco, and Spencer for Hire. This was the second of his three Night Gallery scripts. The story was by Kurt Van Elting. Kurt has only two credits on IMDb. Both for Night Gallery. And this is one of them. Fright Night was directed by Jeff Corey. Now, as an actor, Jeff was a rising star in his thirties until a fellow actor told the House Un-American Activities Committee in the early 1950s that Jeff had been a member of the Communist Party. When he was subpoenaed and put on the stand and told to give the committee the names of two other people in Hollywood with communist leanings, he refused. Jeff Corey was blacklisted and missed out on acting and directing work for about a decade. During that decade, Jeff became one of Hollywood's most renowned method acting coaches, starting out with one-on-one lessons in his garage, and finally establishing the Professional Actors Workshop. Some of his students were actually established performers who needed help on their current projects. Kirk Douglas came to Jeff Corey for help getting into character as Spartacus, for example. Some of Jeff's other students included Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Leonard Nimoy, James Dean. Cher, Rita Moreno, Robin Williams, Penny Marshall, and Barbara Streisand. When Jeff Gorey resumed his own acting career, we saw him in The Outer Limits, The Wild Wild West, Star Trek, True Grit, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, a couple of appearances on Night Gallery in front of the camera this time, Search, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Manimal, Kids*, Starman, Beauty and the Beast, Babylon 5, and countless others as a director this was his ninth and final night gallery directing credit he was also behind the camera for episodes of six Sense and alias Smith and Jones I love it when I see Jeff Corey show up anywhere so it will be my great pleasure to talk about him and his work more in other installments of retrogram we lost mister Corey in 2002 Now, I don't know if you noticed this, when they do the slow pan across the bookshelf, if you've seen this one, the prop department seemed like they were barely trying here. The stickers over the actual titles of the books on their spines are really obvious. One of them's even misspelled. Now, I always try to be fair about this, because in 1972, TV shows were expected to be shown once, maybe a second time as a network rerun, And then, if the show was lucky enough to chalk up a successful run, maybe it would go into syndicated repeats. There were no DVD players or streaming. Video recorders were a super high-end luxury item. Viewers just weren't expected to be going over freeze frames of Night Gallery or anything else that was on the air in 1972. But this was super noticeable on a first viewing, because I don't think I had seen this one before I watched it for this podcast. Given that the series had been renewed for only 15 half-hour episodes, it's probably a function of the budget because that's not exactly a series renewal that screams NBC has competence in this show. Okay, now let's talk about that scene. It's kind of funny. It seems like every every time we talk about a bunch of shows, there's always one that's got that scene. Maybe I'm making too much of it because... It was 1972, after all, and it was done in kind of a tame way. But the whole I'm-going-to-force-scalding-hot-milk-into-your-mouth thing is really kind of terrifying. Supernatural influence or no, it really doesn't speak well to Tom's character. And the crazy sexist rant right before that, Your only job is to feed two people, and kind of makes you glad it's only two people and there are no kids around to see this. But here's the thing, I don't care how much or how little money this guy is bringing in, it doesn't matter if he's struggling writer Tom Ogilvy, or if he's the next Stephen King, uh, he starts acting like that for whatever reason, grab whatever you absolutely have to have, get out of there. And since they just moved, well, really, it's probably all still in a suitcase. Just leave writer's block Tom to his haunted house and his saucepan of delicious boiling milk, and go. I think perhaps the real horror here is that in this day and age, TV was showing this sort of thing as just slightly over the line from being a societal norm. You know, walk it off, forgive it, he didn't mean it. Bad message. This episode is really emblematic of the fading days of Night Gallery. It's trying to be stylish, it's trying to be scary, it's trying to be cutting edge, and it's just winding up landing on a bit silly. We'll be talking about Night Gallery again shortly, and not because there was another episode this week. Just stick around for one of the craziest stories you've ever heard about a canceled TV series, because sometimes merely being canceled is not the worst indignity that a show can suffer. Ghost Story, Episode 12, Creatures of the Canyon, aired Friday, December 15th on NBC. The story so far. The debonair Winston Essex runs Mansfield House, a ritzy hotel through which any number of travelers pass. And some of those travelers have stories. Scary stories. This is just one of them. Creatures of the Canyon. You know what's awkward? Small talk in a car. After a funeral, that's what. Especially when the lady in the passenger seat has just been widowed. Her name is Carol, and her sister Georgia is driving her home. Along the way, they're brought to a dead stop by a huge Doberman standing in the road, barking at them. Not in a friendly way. Carol's neighbors, the Mundys, seem to take their sweet time calling the dog off. Carol's much more partial to her much smaller dog, Charlie. Charlie's just about the only dog who doesn't give Georgia the screaming heebie-jeebies. Georgia has some errands to run, and she'll be back later. That's okay. Carol's ready to just crumple up in a heap on her bed, with no one but Charlie for company. That's all fine and well until Charlie wakes her up. He's agitated, acting like someone's outside. Might be Georgia coming back, but when Carol looks out the window, she's startled to find the Mundy's dog practically trying to climb up her front door, barking viciously. She hears Arthur Mundy whistle again, calling the dog home. Once again, thanks, buddy, you took your sweet time. Headlights coming up the driveway. There's Georgia. In the morning, the sisters each have things to do and go their separate ways, but as Carol comes down the driveway in her car, look out, there's that dog again, not barking this time, just staring her down, almost causing her to go off the road. With a familiar whistle, the dog takes off again. Oh, there's Mundy again. Off to work. At lunch Carol and Georgia get together and talk. Georgia thinks Carol should sell the house, or at least start getting rid of her late husband's things. Carol glances around. Wait, is that that Doberman again? No, no, not even the same breed. Sure looked like him, though. See, the Doberman, Adam, used to belong to Carol and her husband, but they gave him away to the Mondays, and then Carol's husband died. She thinks the dog is somehow blaming her for his death. You know what doesn't help? A statue of two dogs fighting that has just been installed at the art gallery where Carol works. Really not helping with the whole dog theme. At home that night, rinse and repeat. Charlie wakes up and starts barking at something, about as much of an alarm bark as a little Scotty dog can manage. Carol gets up to step outside and check, flashlight in hand. Oh, hey, there's Adam, in her yard, in the dead of night, again. Once more, old man Mundy whistles, calling the dog home. The next day, Carol stops by the Mundy's house on the way to work. We all need to have a talk about the dog. Carol makes a friendly request. Can you guys start keeping Adam inside or keep him tied up at night? The overnight visits are getting to be a bit much. Arthur Mundy, well, he really doesn't care to do anything about it. In fact, he claims that Carol's late husband told him that Carol threatened to leave him if Adam wasn't given away. Nobody's complaining but you, lady, so no, I'm not going to break my dog's spirit by tying him down. That conversation probably could have gone better. As Carol's leaving the gallery that evening, she stares at the statue of the two fighting dogs. Wait, did one of them just move? She's startled by the gallery security guard. He's pretty jazzed by the statue. To him, it shows that nothing's changed since prehistoric times. Someone's always going to get it in the neck. Good night. "'Thanks, Ralph, the security guy. That was so reassuring.' As soon as he's gone, Carol's certain the whole thing just moved again, like the dogs are alive. As if that's not unnerving enough, when she gets home, Arthur Mundy pops out of the bushes by her door. He's carrying Adam. Someone's poisoned Adam, and Mundy immediately accuses Carol of doing it. Mundy walks past her and down the driveway back toward his place, carrying the limp, lifeless dog away.' The next morning, as Carol drives past the Mundy's house, there are some seriously hostile stares. Old man Mundy stands there holding a dog leash with no dog attached, and the chewed-up old leather shoe he used to play fetch with at him. Just staring at Carol. Mrs. Mundy doesn't look too happy either. Later that evening, back at the art gallery, dog cam, we see the point of view of something close to ground level, watching Carol through her office window, and then going to stare at the security guy, following him through the windows of the gallery as he makes his rounds. Later, as Carol's leaving, she thinks she hears a dog barking. She thinks it's Adam. She panics, drops her keys, jumps into the car, rolls up the windows, locks the door, and starts honking the horn until Ralph, the reassuring security guy, comes running. He doesn't see a dog, though. It's all in her head. At home, Carol's a bit upset when Charlie bursts out of the doggy door and races outside. Uh, "'Thanks, buddy. She could have used a little company rather than being stuck in the house by herself. "'Outside, Charlie runs into Mr. Mundy. "'He doesn't get home until quite a bit later. And "'Charlie, that is, not Mr. Mundy. "'Though presumably he goes home later at some point, too. "'I mean, kind of has to, doesn't he? "'Carol thinks she hears a large dog barking outside again, "'and she's not taking any chances. "'She goes to her late husband's gun cabinet, pulls out a revolver, She goes outside, flashlight and gun in hand. She's sure she hears Adam barking. She even calls his name. But Adam's dead, isn't he? Barking again, and now shooting, just randomly into the night. The next day at lunch, Carol tells Georgia, Oh, hey, by the way, I heard Adam again last night. I shot him. I killed him. Okay, but Carol, Adam was already dead. Georgia knows this because Georgia put out the poison for him. Georgia is a terrible person. On her way home, Carol finds Charlie over at the Mundy's house, playing fetch with old man Mundy. She calls Charlie over to her, but he takes his sweet time getting into the car with her. Georgia drops by, too, and things are awkward. Barely a word is spoken between the two sisters. Even Charlie bolts back out the doggy door. He probably doesn't want to be poisoned. Later, a pretty awkward conversation. It turns out that Georgia was the one who suggested that Carol's husband give Adam away. Tension's kind of hanging in the air after that. Georgia leaves for the night, and Carol goes looking for Charlie. She even goes outside to look for him. Oh, wait, why is Georgia's car still here, with one door hanging open? Cut to Georgia stumbling through the woods. She thinks she hears a large dog barking, chasing her. She screams. She falls. She falls. Elsewhere, Mr. Mundy hears the scream and comes running. He finds Georgia covered with blood. What did this to her? Back at Carol's place, Charlie's home, he's not happy. In fact, he's gnashing and snarling at Carol. He jumps at her. Back outside, Mr. Mundy is surprised when Charlie comes up to him, carrying one of Carol's house slippers. Hey, new human buddy, want to play? The end. No, seriously, that's the end. I Have a better title for this one? Charlie's Killing Spree, am I right? Or maybe that would give too much away. Ghost Story was created and developed for television by Richard Matheson. If you wanted something otherworldly or fantastic on your screen, Richard Matheson was your guy. Whether he realized it or not, he had already launched another supernatural series earlier in the year, adapting Jeff Rice's novel into the TV movie The Night Stalker which, of course, was the starting point for Kolchak the Night Stalker. As a novelist, Matheson provided Hollywood with a huge amount of material to adapt, I Am Legend, A Stir of Echoes, What Dreams May Come, and Bid Time Return, a novel which was adapted into a movie called Somewhere in Time. His TV scriptwriting resume includes Have Gun, Will Travel, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Twilight Zone, Star Trek, The Girl from UNCLE, The Night Strangler, He adapted Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles for TV and Amazing Stories. Movies written by Richard Matheson include The Incredible Shrinking Man, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Devil Rides Out Somewhere in Time, Twilight Zone the movie, and Jaws 3D. We lost Richard Matheson in 2013, but his work is continuing to be adapted for both big screen and small. The opening credits make it really clear before they even talk about Anyone who is starring in the show, The Ghost Story is a William Castle production. A mention of William Castle may be a deep dive in the 21st century, but at the time Ghost Story was on the air, he was still hailed as a master of schlock horror. His directing credits stretch back to documentaries in the 1930s, but his real heyday kicks in in 1959 with The House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. Later movies for which Castle was behind the camera included Mr. Sardonicus, Homicidal, Zots, 13 Frightened Girls, and the oddball 1974 movie Shanks, which starred Marcel Marceau. Castle was also the producer of most of his own movies and quite a few others, including a little thing we call Rosemary's Baby. William Castle died in 1977, just a few years after this series aired. Ghost Story and Shanks were just about his last hurrah. Incidentally, Ghost Story was one episode away from being completely retooled. Despite putting William Castle's name front and center in the opening credits, this show was not pulling in the ratings that NBC expected of it, so in 1973 it returned as Circle of Fear, with somewhat scarier opening titles and music, and without Sebastian Cabot introducing each episode. Starring as Carol in this episode was Angie Dickinson, a fixture of TV and movies since the 1950s. She had been in The Mickey Rooney Show, Death Valley Days, Gunsmoke, Cheyenne, Have Gun Will Travel, Perry Mason, The Fugitive, Dr. Kildare, and she was the star of Policewoman from 1974 through 78. And hey, at least this was a step up from Pretty Little Maids All in a Row, a terrible, terrible movie that she was in the previous year. John Ireland stars as Mr. Mundy. He's a Canadian-born actor who had been on the big screen since the 1940s. He was in I Shot Jesse James, All the King's Men, The Bushwhackers, and when TV became a thing in the 50s, you could find him on the small screen, too, in shows like General Electric Theater, Playhouse 90, the ITV Play of the Week, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Rawhide, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Mission Impossible, Planet of the Apes, Salvage One, Airwolf, and War of the Worlds. Sounds like a safe bet that we will be seeing John Ireland a few more times in other installments of Retrogram. He and Angie Dickinson were reunited in an episode of Policewoman and in the 1982 series Cassie Company. We lost John Ireland in 1992. Starring as Carol's sister, Georgia was Madeline Rue. She was one of those actors who has been in absolutely everything, Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, The Untouchables, Craft Mystery Theater, I Spy, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and Mission Impossible, to name just a few. My fellow Star Trek fans might remember her as Lieutenant Marla MacGyvers, who was Khan's main squeeze in the Star Trek episode Space Seed. But she also turns up later in Kolchak, Beretta, Starsky & Hutch, Fame, and Murder, she wrote, as well. Madeline Rue died in 2003. Creatures of the Canyon was written by Del Reisman. He doesn't have a huge number of writing credits. Among them are Peyton Place, Kung Fu, The Six Million Dollar Man, Streets of San Francisco, Lou Grant, Little House on the Prairie. But where Dell really made his mark was as a story consultant and producer. He produced one season each of The Twilight Zone, The Untouchables, Rawhide, and he was the head producer, what you kids would probably call a showrunner today, on a little show in the early 60s called The Lieutenant, a military series that was the first show created by an up-and-coming young writer named Gene Roddenberry. As a story editor, Dell worked on Peyton Place, Bracken's World, Flamingo Road, and Airwolf. Dell Reisman died in 2011. The episode is directed by Walter Doniger. Walter directed episodes of Cheyenne, Conflict, Tombstone Territory, Maverick, Bat Masterson, Men into Space, Outlaws, Kung Fu... And, between 1964 and 68, nearly 200 episodes of Peyton Place. This was his second and final contribution to Ghost Story. In a similar vein, he had also directed a segment of Night Gallery. Walter died in 2011. So, okay, we have an early 70s horror mystery anthology series introduced by an upper-crust bearded guy smoking a cigar. Did somebody in the U.K. see this show during a visit to the States and say, you know what, we need to try this, but this time with Orson Welles instead of Sebastian Cabot? Mundy says, I don't talk to people much, so I don't clutter my mind. Well, okay then, screw that socializing and kindness, Jazz. So much clutter. This really brings me to what's great about this episode – The dogs kind of win in the end, because aside from Ralph, the reassuring security guy, and Mrs. Mundy, who really doesn't get much to say or do, there are things to deeply dislike about each of the human characters in this story. You go, Charlie. I like how Carol squeezes seven shots out of a six-shooter. That's a really good trick, not unheard of in 70s TV, by the way. Now, as someone who cohabits peacefully with a large dog, and I hesitate to describe myself as a dog owner because it just doesn't work that way, I have a great dislike of scare pieces like this one. When I moved from Arkansas to Utah, I brought my great big chunk of pupper mutt with me. She's half Rottweiler, half Blue Heeler. She's friendly, playful, not a dangerous dog at all, but if you don't know she's being playful and she's charging towards you to play with you, Well, okay, I get it, you don't know that she's being playful. Honestly, the worst thing she might do is lick you to death if you lie still for approximately 800 years. If you run, she's going to come after you, like healers do, and she's going to try to get a hold of your ankle, but really, I've taken worse damage from my cats. But moving out here to Utah, I had the damnedest time finding a place to live where I could bring my dog with me. Rottweilers, even just part Rottweilers, are apparently now considered a dangerous breed. I have yet to meet a single pit bull or pit mix that I found threatening in any way. Every pit I've ever met in person has been an absolutely lovely mobile repository of dog slobber and affection. For the record, I am very much of the no-bad-dogs-just-bad-owners camp. This story is tragic only in the sense that Adam deserved better owners all around. And Charlie, well... Charlie's had it up to here with human shit and he's doing something about it. You go, Charlie. Sweet, fluffy, homicidal Charlie. Good boy. Since Season 2, Episode 11, Gallows in the Wind, aired Saturday, December 16th on ABC. The story so far. Meet Dr. Michael Rhodes. He's a mild-mannered college professor who also happens to be one of the world's leading authorities on ESP. And he's enough of an authority that he now heads up the school's parapsychology department. He keeps on the lookout for any incidents in the news that might have a hint of psychic phenomena and occasionally he gets called in by those needing help with paranormal problems. Dr. Rhodes seldom has a dull moment, and he does have plenty of scary ones. Gallows in the Wind A twisty road along a craggy, rocky, steep shoreline. Great place for a tour, huh? It just so happens that one of the locals specializes in giving this particular tour to anyone who will pay for it. His clientele on this particular windy, going-on stormy day are an older couple, as well as a man and a young woman. They make a stop by a historical marker, original site of Chalmers, population 367, destroyed by the great hurricane of August 17th, 1893. Carrie Evers, the young woman, goes wandering off on her own, struck by the beauty of the place. She happens upon a stone building that looks like it hasn't been used for anything in ages. Oh, but wait, someone's coming out of it, a woman in a black robe. Carrie looks closer. This woman has her face, and she's beckoning Carrie to come closer, into the building, in fact. So that's where she goes. But where did the lady in black go? She's not in here. What is here is a dirt floor and a grave marker right in the middle of the building, with Carrie's name on it. Suddenly it's as if she's somewhere else entirely, not in a building, but a graveyard one with at least one open grave. Oh, hey, there's a black-robed figure pointing at Carrie, standing at the open grave. It's flooded with water, and Carrie sees her own body float to the surface for just a second before submerging again. And, okay, we're getting out of here. She races out of the graveyard. No, wait, that is, she races out of the stone building and runs right into Mr. Sandifer, who's been looking for her. She tells him, Something wants me dead. At Preston's Lodge, the local boat rental and supply store, there is, if you'll pardon me using a southern expression, a storm whipping up something fierce. Might be another hurricane. At least that's what Owen, the son of the owner, Mr. Preston, happens to think. The elder Preston thinks this storm will soon be working its way up to a tropical storm, maybe even a hurricane, something with a name. Betty sounds good. Definitely feels like a Betty. He even ribs Owen for being too young to have experienced the last major hurricane to hit here. You know who else he's teasing about never having survived a hurricane close-up? Owen's college professor, Dr. Michael Rhodes. That's okay, Mr. Preston calmly says as he polishes off a well-used hurricane lamp. We'll put you boys to work. You can close storm shutters, board up some windows, right? You can pretty much feel three words oozing from Owen's every pore. Not now, Dad. Hey, more company is here. It's Mac Burton, the local tour guide, racing to get to higher ground with those two couples he was showing around earlier. That coastal highway he was on is rapidly going underwater. Yep, storms are coming in. Preston isn't exactly running a bed and breakfast here, but it's the only shelter for miles. Dr. Rhodes immediately senses something is up with the young woman named Carrie. Something has spooked her badly. She goes upstairs with Mrs. Young, another tourist from Burton's car, to try to relax. Mr. Sandifer tells Rhodes what happened, the building, the vision of the grave marker, and maybe some kind of death threat. It all sounds crazy, unless you're Michael Rhodes, and then it sounds like it might be a premonition of some sort. Mr. Preston figures it's all those pills the kids are popping these days, presumably while we're listening to their loud rock and roll music. Yeah, you would think that, wouldn't you, Owen mumbles before excusing himself. A little close to home there, Owen? In the meantime, the powers flickering on and off seems like a good time for Mr. Preston to fire up the ham radio gear, get a read on the storm, and a good time for Dr. Rhodes and Carrie to go have a word about this experience she had. First off, Rhodes comes clean. Nobody knows why psychic phenomena happen, and visions like the one Carrie saw are often distortions of reality, subject to interpretation. She says it's the first time that something like this has happened to her. She's just a Kansas girl who laid eyes on an ocean for the first time in her life today. And now this. sound of hammering can be heard below. Time to cover up these windows. Mm Mm-hmm. Storm's coming in. Rhodes goes to lend his muscle to the effort to batten down the hatches, and Carrie stays in her room, a little bit reassured that someone believes her. But then it's happening again, and not only does Carrie feel it, Rhodes senses it, too. Carrie's back in the graveyard, but now she's dressed all in black. Uh, Something's different, a gallows, the hangman's noose, and that figure in black she saw before, that's the hangman, pointing at her, again. A body floats up out of the open grave, but this time, it's that nice stranger, Dr. Rhodes. She's not sticking around for this dream, or nightmare, or whatever this is, but when she tries to run, the hangman is there waiting, blocking her escape. Hey, whose eyes are those under that hood? Carrie isn't sticking around to find out. Not that she can get away. The hangman has an axe, and he's trying to chop down a tree. Suddenly Carrie's back in her room at Preston's, and a tree comes crashing through the wall of the house. Except it doesn't. Uh, Dr. Rhodes, could you come up here, please? Rhodes now believes that Carrie's visions are a warning. Mr. Preston, still in a mood to dispense some down-home wisdom that he feels is way better than Dr. Rhodes' book learning, thinks it's all nonsense. Rhodes is only worried because Carrie's latest vision featured him in a watery grave. But what if there's more to it than that? Has there ever been an execution nearby? Preston isn't offering any information, and he's done listening to Dr. Rhodes trying to interpret Carrie's visions. Rhodes tries to find out if Preston's son Owen has any local knowledge. But Owen's only ever soaked up enough local knowledge for him to decide that he doesn't want to stay here where his dad lives, stuck running the lodge. Rhodes clams up a bit, keeps quiet, just looks around, sizing up his housemates in this place where none of them intended to stay. And Carrie, she's out like a light again, but she's also in the graveyard again. So is the man with the axe. He's trying to take down the tree again, but this time when the tree comes down in her dream or vision, it comes down in real life right into the house. Carrie comes downstairs, and she's in a bit of a trance, still seeing things. Now she's climbing the stairs to the gallows, and everyone else in the house is there, too. Mr. Sandifer, the older couple, Owen, Mac Burton, the tour driver, Dr. Rhodes. Uh, Where's Mr. Preston? Shouldn't he be here? The Axeman points to the flooded, empty grave, and Carrie sees each of her housemates afloat in it. Mr. Sandifer, the older couple, Owen, Mac Burton, the tour driver, Dr. Rhodes, uh, they're all going to die. Okay, Carrie's housemates are getting kind of tired of these supernatural predictions of impending doom, and they'd all really appreciate it if Carrie would just shut up. The eye of the storm passes overhead, all quiet for now. Mr. Preston finally gets a ham radio call in and discovers the help is quite a ways away. He wants to take this opportunity to get everyone out of here and further inland. In fact, there's an old stone building, almost like a bunker, that he knows about. Carrie advises everyone to stay in the house, but they're done listening to her. Dr. Rhodes pleads with Preston to stay put, but he gets no traction. Preston decides to put it to a vote. Who's with me for going to the stone building? The older couple, Mac Burton and Mr. Sandifer, are all ready to go. And the wind is starting to pick up outside again. Mm Mm-hmm. Storm's coming back in. Even the roof is creaking. Even Owen, Carry, and Rhodes are ready to leave now. To the stone building they go, but just before they all run in and barricade the door against the wind, Carry is freaking out. You know we're all going to die in here. Rhodes stares into her eyes, trying to calm her down, but no, we're going to have another vision instead. The gallows, the hangman, Cary in black, only this time Kerry rips the hood off the executioner in her vision. It's Mr. Preston. When she tells everyone about this, Mr. Preston is, perhaps understandably, pretty peeved. Carrie's vision continues, the noose's shadow on the wall and one of the building's stone walls collapsing. Rhodes finally figures it out. This stone building was once a prison. People were executed here, and it'll become their grave if they don't all get back to the house. This spooks everyone into returning to Preston's place, everyone except Preston himself. As the others run back to the relative safety of the house, Preston stands firm. He is not leaving the stone building. And he's right, he's not leaving. The wall behind him collapses, bringing the whole roof down on him. He's dead. Everyone else survives just fine in the house. It would have been best if they hadn't left. Creaky, leaky roof or not, at least, it's still standing. Help is finally on its way. It's tragic for Owen, though. His dad wasn't trying to execute anyone, but anyone who heeded his advice, stayed in the stone building, might as well have been walking up to the gallows, just as Carrie saw in her visions. The End Long before anyone was seeing dead people on the big screen, The Sixth Sense was desperately trying to keep its tenuous foothold on ABC's Saturday night schedule. What made that so difficult... Airing at the same time over on CBS on Saturday nights was the juggernaut that was Mission Impossible, which is the show we'll discuss in other retrogram installments, because there was no new Mission Impossible episode this week in 1972. By this point, it really didn't matter. ABC had already quietly canceled The Sixth Sense after lackluster ratings in November, so these remaining episodes were officially being broadcast in burn-off mode. The last episode aired the following week in December 1972. The creator of The Sixth Sense was Anthony Lawrence. Anthony had been writing TV for over a decade at this point. Episodes of Death Valley Days, Have Gun Will Travel, Bonanza, The Outer Limits, The Fugitive, Rat Patrol, Mod Squad, Gunsmoke, Room 222, and then in 1971 he wrote the TV movie of the week Sweet Sweet Rachel, which though it shares no characters with The Sixth Sense was effectively this series' pilot. After the brief two-season run of Sixth Sense, Anthony would go on to write for Circle of Fear, Hawaii Five-O, Ironside, the live-action TV Planet of the Apes, Streets of San Francisco, Columbo, and then in 1981, he and his wife Nancy co-created the very short-lived Judson Scott series The Phoenix. From there, his resume trails off a bit, although he did write an installment of the 1980s Twilight Zone revival, So there's a pretty good chance we will be discussing Anthony's other work in other installments of Retrogram. The star of Sixth Sense is Gary Collins, and we have already seen Gary in an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man and the somewhat lamentable docudrama Houston We've Got a Problem in previous Retrograms. He's just one of those timeless Hollywood legends who managed to just keep working and working and working. And this is his home turf, his own little supernatural paranormal corner of the primetime schedule, in 1972. By the way, if you're swearing up and down that this story, right down to the character names, sounds awfully familiar, but you'd swear it was an episode of a different show, you're not wrong. Since The Sixth Sense never made enough episodes to be syndicated on its own, and neither did its sister universal television series Night Gallery, someone at the studio had what they thought was a masterstroke of brilliance. We'll double the number of Night Gallery episodes by chopping the hour-long episodes in half, making them only a half hour each, which was not an entirely insane proposition, since the original hour-long Night Gallery episodes tended to be made up of two or three shorter stories. But then we'll put the number of episodes over the top by slicing every episode of the sixth sense in half and cramming it into half an hour, too. And this was a really nutty idea. And then, because so much story setup had hit the cutting room floor in that ridiculous slice it in half edit, Rod Serling was dragged back into the studio to record new intros that had been written for each Sixth Sense story, where he explained some of the missing story points. But these intros required even more time to be cut out of what was left of the Sixth Sense episode in question. So you're taking a roughly 50-minute show, knocking it down to about 22 to 24 minutes, and then surgically removing another minute or three so Rod Serling can try to make up for the narrative deficiencies that somehow suddenly get introduced by cutting an hour show clean in half. The conventional wisdom in the TV business of old, before specialty cable channels hungry for content, and then later DVD box sets and streaming services changed everything, used to be that somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 episodes was an ideal syndication package. But just 100 was okay. Cutting 28-hour-long episodes of Night Gallery down to 56 half-hour Night Galleries, plus those 15 half-hour episodes from the third season of Night Gallery, got you most of the way there. That's 71 episodes. Slicing up the 25 episodes of Sixth Cents brought the Night Gallery syndication package up to 96 episodes. Hey, close enough for jazz. Now, yes, I can hear you screaming, maybe not at me, but at the Hollywood executive circa 1973. The 25 one-hour Sixth Cents shows could have been divided up into 50 half-hour episodes, yielding a total syndication package of 121 episodes for Night Gallery. But... That would mean doubling the residuals for every actor, writer, director, and composer involved in The Sixth Sense, and let's be straight up here, no studio was going to sign up for that. And yes, many of these Sixth Sense episodes wound up being kind of lobotomized to be included as part of the Night Gallery syndication package. The original Sixth Sense episodes have since shown up on cable, most recently on Chiller, And there was a complete series DVD box set, minus the sweet, sweet Rachel movie I mentioned earlier. But this was released only in France, although it did include the original English audio as an option. The series and episode titles show up in French, but all of the other credits are in English. Go figure. It's worth mentioning that this DVD set is now out of print. Now guest starring as Carrie Evers was Meg Foster. Meg arrived on the scene just in time to be in absolutely everything in the seventies Bonanza, The Mod Squad, Mannix, Circle of Fear, The Six Million Dollar Man, Beretta, Hawaii Five O. Now in nineteen eighty two she was the second Detective Cagney in Cagney and Lacey. The first was played by Loretta Swit in the TV movie that inspired the series, but of course she was still tied down to MASH, so Meg Foster took over during the short first season of Cagney and Lacey on CBS which at the time was a very unproven mid season pickup. The character of Cagney was recast between seasons because CBS executives literally thought, she's so tough, she's not feminine. Viewers might think Cagney's a lesbian. Really? So what? Even after Sharon Gless took over as Cagney, Meg went on to the 80s Twilight Zone revival, Miami Vice, Quantum Leap, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Hercules, Xena, Sliders, and Pretty Little Liars, while also landing movie roles in the likes of They Live, Leviathan, and many others. R.G. Armstrong guest starred as Jack Preston. Robert Golden R.G. Armstrong had an affinity for playing crazy characters, especially if they were crazy preachers. I guess that was just his favorite character type acting-wise. He was seen in Half Gun Will Travel, The Rifleman, The Andy Griffith Show, The Twilight Zone, Laramie, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Rawhide, The Fugitive, Gunsmoke, The Invaders, Ellery Queen, Salvage One, Trapper John M.D., and he was a major presence in the late 80s series bearing the name Friday the 13th, in which he was Uncle Lewis, the character whose shop of curious, cursed goods wound up being the responsibility of his niece and nephew. It was also the old man in the X-Files spin-off Millennium. R.G. Armstrong died in 2012. And yes, it's a young Richard Hatch guest-starring as Owen Preston, this was one of Richard's earliest roles as he was still a few years away from being cast as Michael Douglas's replacement as the young half of the popular old cop young partner series The Streets of San Francisco during its final season, which ran from 1976 to 77. The following year, Hatch was cast as colonial space pilot Apollo, the son of Lorne Green's character in Battlestar Galactica. But even though it carried him to household name status, that's another gig that only lasted Richard Hatch a year as major retooling meant that most of the cast was replaced in Galactica's second season, which became known as Galactica 1980. From there, it was on to the TV guest-starring merry-go-round with roles on Fantasy Island, Murder, She Wrote, T.J. Hooker, Dynasty, The Love Boat, MacGyver, Santa Barbara, and Baywatch. It was at about this time that Richard started making some serious effort to revive Battlestar Galactica with an eye toward resuming the role of Apollo, Though when that finally did happen, it happened in a very different form, but Richard was still along for the ride in a new role, that of political agitator Tom Zarek, in the revived Battlestar Galactica on Sci-Fi Channel. He was also involved in a couple of major Star Trek fan films, in the proof-of-concept piece Prelude to Axenar, and in an episode of Star Trek New Voyages that has yet to be released. His final appearances were in the TV series Personal Space, and in the movie Diminuendo, both of which were released after Richard Hatch died in 2017. Gallows in the Wind was written by the executive story consultant for The Sixth Sense, Don Ingalls. Don wrote episodes of Danger Man, Whiplash, Have Gun, Will Travel, The Virginian, Then Came Bronson, Fantasy Island, and T.J. Hooker, the last two of which he was also a producer. This was one of many writing credits he racked up on The Sixth Sense alone. Don Ingalls died in 2014. Now the credits say the episode was directed by Alan Crossland. This was actually Alan Crossland Jr. He was a second generation Hollywood director whose work is like an all-star lineup of 50s, 60s, and 70s TV. Men into Space, Peter Gunn, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, Combat, The Wild Wild West, Six Million Dollar Man, Gemini Man, The Bionic Woman, Wonder Woman, and a few 80s credits, including Auto Man, The Fall Guy, and MacGyver. I don't know about you, but I think we will be talking more about Alan Crossland Jr.'s work quite a bit in other installments of Retrogram, and kudos to him for this one, his only Sixth Sense episode, because the dream sequences really are kind of stylish and unsettling. Alan Crossland Jr. died in 2001. Okay, Internet, I need you to tap into your hive mind and think really hard, is there anything explicitly preventing the tour guide Mac Burton in this episode of The Sixth Sense from being, say, the uncle or father of Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China? Hit me up in the comments on the show page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram, on Twitter at Logbook or on the Facebook page. Could they be related? Does the world truly need a Big Trouble in Little China cinematic universe? Now, I kept on staring at that giant, mounted, taxidermied sturgeon on the wall behind Dr. Rhodes whenever he was standing in front of the fireplace at Preston's place. If only this show had been made about 20 years later, that could have been a big-mouth Billy Bass. It could have helped out with the exposition. Bop-a-bow, somebody wants her dead. No? Well, it was just an idea. Now something else that seemed like it was a bit out of its time here was the bionic sound effect. You know the one I'm talking about. You heard it as the hangman swung his axe at the tree. Now for context this show was aired the year before the first six million dollar man pilot movie. So really if you think about it the six million dollar man borrowed this sound effect from the sixth sense. Not the other way around. It's all got a nice atmosphere to it but the twist is barely a twist. It really would have made more sense if the stone bunker was somehow a flooding hazard, given how much emphasis was placed on everyone lying in watery graves. But, hey, what do I know? Well, I tell you what I do know. I do know I was ready for R.G. Armstrong's character to shuffle off this mortal coil. As much as I chuckle ruefully to myself about a show that takes ESP very seriously in the first place, Mr. Preston was even worse. Y'all's book-learnin' means nothin' to us simple country folk. Granted, I got the distinct feeling that this was supposed to be happening someplace like Maine, rather than the southern Atlantic coast of the United States. But whatever accent it wears, anti-scientific sentiment, wears really thin on me really fast, even before we got into the political and cultural mess that we are in now. There's a famous quote by Isaac Asimov, and it goes a little something like this. There is a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there always has been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurturing the false notion that democracy means, My ignorance is as good as your knowledge. Now, setting aside current unfortunate political realities for the moment, this quote kind of segues into an area where it sometimes makes me uncomfortable about lumping science fiction in with supernatural and horror fiction under the umbrella of speculative fiction. Horror and supernatural fiction are in large part inspired by superstitions, some of them incredibly old. Science fiction, on the other hand, is inspired by something as simple as let's change one thing about the laws of physics and see what would happen, or something as far-reaching as a futuristic world where everyone gets along or maybe where no one gets along. One is rooted in the past and the other reaches for futures that could be. I think there's a good reason I prefer sci-fi to horror, and I think that's a big part of the reason. I mean, a good scary story is fun, I'm just still trying to figure out if any of the shows that aired this week in 1972 were really particularly good scary stories. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find more of his work at freemusicarchive.org. A huge thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. There isn't any haunted trunk or cursed dog statue they wouldn't overturn to keep the site and its various podcasts and video casts around. If you'd like show transcripts, extra patron-exclusive downloadable trading cards, and early show access, and occasionally even whole extra shows, get yourself over to patreon.com slash the logbook, just like Kevin and Darwin and Javier have done. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash the logbook, or by ordering, well, anything, except, hopefully, Haunted dog statues through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com/slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.